The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Hey, uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up in the air, wave it around. We'll make sure that you get one. Um, I'm going to have you guys plan ahead. Um, if you're also, when you get your Bibles, Luke 16 is where we're going to start, but we're barely going to be in Luke 16, just to be quite honest with you. Um, I, in particular, want you to kind of earmark or be ready at some point to go to Ezekiel chapter 16 as well. And then finally, Ephesians 5. And uh, I thought about this last service. We haven't really talked about this so much, but um, here at Heritage, we, we do not put the, the, um, the actual text that we're walking through up on the screens. So like right now, we're going through the book of Luke. So we do not, as habit, put the Luke text up on the screen. Um, the reason that we don't do that is because we want you to bring your Bibles and we don't want to create kind of a culture where you're like, well, I don't need to bring my Bible because they'll just put it up on the screen. Now, we, we do put like secondary texts as we'll do it a few times today because I'm, I'm going to be all over the Bible today on this particular topic. Um, so we do do that with some secondary texts um, for a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's just for, for speed because we're, we're referencing to something and I don't want you guys to have to be in Luke and then have to go all the way over here to this one and then come all the way back to the next one necessarily. So sometimes we do that. And, and then sometimes also just because if there's someone who's new, um, who does not know the Bible or the scriptures, and they're, you know, they're, they're here with them, then we want them to be able to kind of stay primarily in the text that we're in and be able to assist with some of that. So they're not going, Ezekiel, where in the world is, what is that? You know, like, so, so we want to try to serve people like that. But the primary text that we're in, we, we just don't typically put it up on the screen because we, we want you to just bring your Bibles. That makes sense? But so today, though, there's a couple of texts I want you to read with me. So that's why I want you to be able to uh, be ready to go to Ezekiel 16 as well as Ephesians 5. But I'm going to be all over the place today uh, because today we are teaching on everybody's favorite topic, divorce. Um, and this is hard. This is difficult because um, some of us have this in our past, um, whether it be product of divorce like I am. My family got divorced. My, my parents did years ago, or some, some of you have been divorced. Some were divorced before they got saved. Some people have gotten divorced after they got saved. Some have been divorced when they didn't want to get divorced. Some are going through, have gone through divorces when they were trying and the other isn't. Like there's all, uh, there's, there's just a lot of stuff attached to it. And, and divorce in particular is one of those that, especially within a church context, can have a lot of uh, uh, emotion and stuff that gets attached to it. Things like shame, regret, embarrassment, anger, all sorts of things. It's a huge topic. And so I just want to tell you guys right now, we can't possibly cover everything today in 45 minutes. I couldn't do it this morning in 45 minutes. I did in 50. But I'm going to try to speed up this morning. But um, we're, we're just going to try to get one point across to just understand the heart behind marriage in general today. So I'm saying that because for some of you who maybe you have divorce in your background, you could be tempted to walk out of here feeling shamed. And, and that's not the point. 
Um, if, if you're wrestling with some of this stuff, if you've got some of this stuff in your history and you're having a hard time, I want to encourage you to reach out to the church after this. Um, I want you to wrestle with the Lord in this because there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. If the Lord's convicting you on something, man, then please hear the Lord and work in that in your life. If it's condemnation where the enemy is coming in and trying to whisper and make you feel shame and make you feel regret, things that Jesus has already settled and taken care of on the cross, then that's not our intent for you to carry. But it is in the Scripture. And when we walk through the the scriptures, like the goal of going through the Bible the way that we do is so that we can't dodge anything, even the hard things. And so we're going to talk about this topic of divorce, but we're going to take it from a little bit of a different angle, uh, um, which is actually, I believe, the angle that Jesus takes in the scripture here. Does that make sense? So you guys with me on that? So we're going to be all over the place, but this is not a full treatise on everything Heritage believes about divorce. In all honesty, we've got people on our board and our leadership that, that don't always agree on some of the lines regarding divorce and all that kind of stuff. So our goal is going to be to capture the heart of the issue that Jesus is talking about. Sound good? So that verse is Luke chapter 16, verse 18, and it says this, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Lord, we just pray now that your spirit would be in this place and that you would just teach us more about you, about your will, about your heart for us, about our calling as your children, and about, Lord, this particular topic in general, marriage and divorce, Lord, it's, it's such a big thing and it's so complicated at different times and difficult at times. And it's just, it's a very personal topic. And I just pray, God, that you would break through wherever we are in whatever area we are and you would speak to our heart and help us to understand not just your love and your grace, but your will and your desires as well. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. So here we are in Luke chapter 16. Now, it's important that we understand the context because this verse has been used as a standalone verse very many times to just build... um, well, sometimes dogmatic doctrines regarding divorce. And, and that can be done so. There's some really um, intentional, like Jesus isn't just making something up when he says this. There's reality to it. So it's important that we understand this and be able to read this in the same way. So here's the important thing. The context of the passage that we're reading right now is really important. I literally just got a whole alert saying that my iPad, which has all my notes on, is about to die. So this could be interesting. All right. So so here's, uh, here's what's going on here, right? Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees at this time. He's talking to these religious leaders, and he's sort of in the middle of calling them out for things that they're doing, the ways that they're using the law of God erroneously. And so, for example, with giving, he talks about giving. Now, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were, they were, so to speak, giving people in terms of the requirements of the law. When it came to their requirement to tithe, they would tithe down to every little detail. They would give everywhere that they were supposed to give. In fact, they would make sure everyone knew that they gave. Jesus calls them out at a different time about how they would come to give and they would just call out to everybody and make a big spectacle so that everybody knew that they were coming and giving. And the reason that they did that is because it was about them. See, here's the annoying thing about Jesus. He's never going to let us stay surfacy. 
He always cuts through and gets to the heart of things. And so, for example, in giving, he's calling them out because he's like, hey, look, you guys, you're, you're giving according to the law. You're doing what the law requires regarding giving, yeah, but it's surfacy because the idea behind what I'm trying to do, what God wants for you is to be generous people, and you're not generous people. And you go, wait a minute, but they're giving. Of course they're generous people. No, 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 no. They're giving for selfish reasons. Their giving has nothing to do with a heart of generosity towards other people. Their giving has to do with, I get attention, people think I'm spiritual and holy, and I look really good when I give. So their giving is actually an act of pride, is what they're doing. And so Jesus is calling them out, hey, yeah, you're using the law, you're giving, but you're not generous people. Your heart is far from what God actually intends. That's the context of this particular text. And you go, okay, well then, why does he talk to them about divorce? Well, because divorce at this particular time, super common. It was actually really common in the culture there. Um, And there was a whole lot of reasons behind it where people, even Pharisees, even leaders would do this in such a way that they believed they were holding to God's word and law, and yet their heart in what was happening was far from them. And so the Pharisees would root their teachings on divorce um, primarily from this passage in Deuteronomy. So we're going to put this text up here on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring any sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." Now, if we can go back to the first slide, I want to point out the very, very beginning of this. This is a complicated thing that's going here. So the Pharisees, they know this passage, they've memorized it, and they're building sort of a theology or a belief system about divorce out of this text. And so different Pharisees or or different rabbis in general, actually, would would have different doctrines or belief systems based on the way that they interpret Scripture, kind of like pastors or or religious leaders do now, the way that we interpret things you teach out of that interpretation. So you've got all these rabbis that would read this and study this, and they have certain belief systems based on it. So, So a rabbi would read this, and he would see, when a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. And so some guys would read that and they would go, okay, so divorce then is okay in the Mosaic law um, if, if that woman finds no favor in the eyes of her husband. And, and that, no, that favor that she's lost in the eyes of her husband is based on the fact that he has found some indecency in her. And so the key word then becomes indecency. And so different rabbis would interpret that or translate that or extrapolate that in different ways. So you had this huge spectrum of teachings in the Jewish culture in first century Palestine here where some would say any indecency at all. If a guy says, I've seen indecency in my wife, she is no longer um, fit to be my wife, he can legally divorce her. There were guys that would teach that. 
There were others that would do it a little more conservatively or a little more strictly, and they would say, well, indecency, that's the same word for like nakedness. And so they would say, that means that she has exposed herself to someone else. That means, that means infidelity. So if she's been unfaithful and she slept with another man, that's what he's talking about there. So you had this big spectrum from a ultra-liberal view that just if, if some guy for whatever whim just said, I found indecency with her, she has lost favor with me, he could divorce her all the way to, no, only, only in specific cases regarding um, infidelity or adultery. That's when you can divorce. And then anywhere in between, there were all sorts of different teachings that different people had on this particular view at the time. And as a result, divorce was actually really common in first century Palestine. And notice, by the way, doesn't say anything, and rabbis at that time, no one taught that a woman could divorce her husband. That was not allowed in that culture. And it was super difficult for women because if you get divorced, imagine you're a woman who the husband finds, he he says, you've lost favor in my eyes because of some indecency, so I'm writing you a certificate of divorce and you're gone. Well, in a highly legalistic and highly religious culture, there is intense shame attached to that. Because everyone else in the culture would be like, oh, indecency, nakedness, she's, she's done this, she's done that. And so it was a really shameful thing. It was a very damaging system for women at that particular time. And though rabbis disagreed on when divorce was allowed, all rabbis agreed that in certain instances divorce was allowed. The difference was when. When is it okay? When can we do this? When can I do this? Can I do this now? Can I do this then? What's allowed? And this is kind of the way people are even within the church now with regards to divorce. You've got different people that believe different things are okay. Some people say only in infidelity. Other people would say, well, no, infidelity or abuse. Others would say, and on and on and on and on. There's all sorts of translations that different people have. And we tend to approach it from that same sort of angle when we cover the topic of divorce within the church. Usually it's going, when is it okay? When is it okay? The thing is, though, when people ask Jesus, when is it okay, his answer really doesn't answer that question so much. Like I said, he doesn't stay surfacy; he goes to the heart. So instead of when is it okay, he tends to push beyond the law that's given in Deuteronomy to something previous to that, to the heart of why it's there in the first place. So our intention this morning, as we approach this text, is going to be to do that same thing. Let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 10, in uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, which I think we had a slide mess up there. Oh, you guys fixed it. You're awesome. Well done. Thank you for that. Um, So, because that was my mistake. I gave them half a slide this morning and I went, look at the slide and it was wrong. So they covered for me really well, but then I just admitted it anyway. So here we go. Mark chapter 10. This is Jesus here. It says, and he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate divorce and to send her away. So you can see that Deuteronomy text. That's what they're drawing from when they say that. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Next slide, please. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, 
and the two shall become one flesh. That's going to be a really important sentence for us to remember there. Therefore, this is Jesus quoting, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again on this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband, marries another, she commits adultery. So we see the parallel text in what Jesus is teaching. Here's what I want you to notice. The Pharisees, when they were dealing with the topic of divorce, they go to Deuteronomy and they go, this is what the law says we can do. When Jesus is asked about divorce, he goes further than that. He goes past the law before the law was even written, and he goes to Genesis. And that's really important. He's going to the heart. You could say it this way. When the question comes to Jesus, when can we get divorced? Jesus instead answers the question, what's important about marriage? And that's a very different thing. And so that's what I want to do today. I don't want us to look at it like, where can we? Let's not plan for the, the, the failure. Let's, let's talk instead about the heart behind it and why it's all important in the same way. And I believe this is how Jesus handled it too. So to do that, we're going to go to Genesis. So in the book of Genesis, we have the first wedding. And I do, uh, this is kind of where I go when I'm, I'm basically giving you guys today a much more detailed version of what I would share at an actual wedding ceremony if, if I was to do your wedding. So um, sneak preview here, and if you don't like it, you can get one of the other pastors. But this is, this is what, what we do. So in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, we have the first wedding. And I, I want you to look at what's happening here, and then I want you to think about what's going on in comparison to how we do weddings today. And it's pretty interesting. Verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. All the ladies said, Amen. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Excuse me. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's that line again. Now, let's think about this for just a second. Adam's in creation. Everything's perfect, but he's alone. He's not complete. God knows that. So what does God do? He says, Adam, I got a job for you. I want you to name all the animals. And so the animals start coming by Adam, and he starts naming them. But he's noticing that as he's naming, there comes boy dog, girl dog. There's boy cow, girl cow. There's uh, boy rhinoceros, girl rhinoceros. Those are probably really bad animals for me to be choosing from in a marriage analogy, but um, uh, boy beautiful peacock, girl beautiful peacock. I don't know, whatever. So all these animals are coming through, and he's naming the different ones, but as he's doing it, he's like, well, they, they have a, a partner, and they have a partner, and they have a partner, and they have a partner, but I'm, I'm all alone. Okay, now think wedding ceremony. In a wedding ceremony, what do we do? As the wedding starts, the guy's standing up front, maybe with the pastor, but he's kind of by himself up there, right? And what happens? The wedding party starts coming in, 
and assuming that they both have at least a, a, an equal somewhat amount of friends, the number's usually even in the wedding party, right? So you have a bridesmaid comes in and a groomsman comes in, and a bridesmaid comes in and a groomsman comes in, and a bridesmaid comes in. You see the parallel that's happening here? And now you've got, man, there's, a, there's like a bridesmaid for every groomsman. They're sort of all paired up, though we do make them stand separate. But that's how it works. But where's mine? And then in comes the father with the bride on his arm, and he walks in and brings his bride to Adam. See, though a lot of our wedding ceremonies are very Disney-ish in terms of princesses and castles and all that kind of stuff, the roots of the whole thing are actually right here. The wedding was invented as people were invented. It, it's rooted in something that God did much, much, much longer ago. And it's, it's this picture of what even happened with Adam in that very moment. And so this is the ceremony that takes place. And so this is what's happening here. Adam's seeing everybody's all coupled up but me. And then God comes in with Eve. He's got his daughter on his arm and brings Eve into Adam. And Adam is stoked. Like that's a song. That's like, dude just busted out in dance and he's so happy he's just singing and he's like, whoa, look at this woman, this is mine. Like he is stoked when this happens. And then there's this line at the end after Adam's song, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. We see this biblical ceremony, it's really cool and it's beautiful till you turn the page. And then you get to Genesis 3. And what happens? You've got Adam and Eve living in paradise under God's rule, partnering with God in cultivating the garden and, and working together in there. And then the serpent comes in and says, you know, it can kind of be about you, you know. I mean, you don't have to stay subservient to God. You can actually be just like him. And the first lie he gives to them is this lie of like self-fulfillment. It can just be about you. you. You can live for your own joy. You don't have to be subservient to him anymore. You can be like God. And so they take of the fruit, both of them, and everything implodes from there. You guys know the story. All the harmony and everything they had breaks down. Uh, in a wedding ceremony, I usually stop reading that text right there at the end of verse 24. The next verse is the one that you should tell them right after the marriage ceremony is over. It's the one where it says, and they were both naked and they were not ashamed. You wait till after the ceremony to tell the couple that. But that's the reality of what's going on. And so then what ends up happening? This curse comes. Sin has entered. Now they're pointing fingers at one another. God comes looking for Adam, and Adam goes from this guy that's like, Woo! She's mine! To, hey, you gave her to me, it's her fault. And she's turning around going, no, it's the snake's fault. There's finger pointing, all this goes on. Now they start covering their nakedness. They're like hiding each other with leaves. Suddenly the, this harmony they had and this openness they had between them is gone. It's all ruined. And it gets worse. They have two kids and one of them kills each other. Like, remember, that's the first sibling pair, murder. So if your kids are fighting, it could be worse. So now if the story stopped right there, it'd be really, really lame. But it doesn't. God moves on from that. He, it moves from a man to a couple, from a couple to a family, from a family to a nation. And he creates this nation called Israel. He calls Abram out of this land and he says, Abram, I'm going to do something. 
I'm going to make a nation. I want you to leave the place where you're at, and I'm going to take you over to this other land that I've got from you. And I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless other nations. Now, Abram's kind of a mess. I mean, he goes from that to telling, him, telling uh, Pharaoh that his wife is his sister so that, yeah, yeah, it's not my wife, it's my sister. Go ahead and sleep with her. Like, he's a train wreck. All that goes really bad. All kinds of other stuff goes on. But God stays, keyword, faithful. Faithful to what? How do they deserve being faithful? I mean, Adam and Eve right out the bat mess everything up. Brothers are killing each other. It goes all the way to the flood, for goodness sakes. Why would he be faithful? Because in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise concerning Eve about the, 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 the one that would come through Eve's lineage. He says, one is going to come from her that's going to crush the head of the serpent. When did that appear? Oh, whoever brought me that, you rock. I was like, do I talk faster so that I don't have to... Is it working? Button on the bottom? We'll edit this all out later. It's working. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Gold star upon your chest. Okay, so, so here's what's happening. Um, he's faithful to his promise in Genesis 3 that one is going to come through that lineage that's going to reverse the curse, that's going to crush the head of the serpent. It's not about how amazing they are, therefore I should stay faithful to them. In fact, they're constantly not faithful, but he's faithful to his word. So he creates this nation called, called Israel, and he says, through you, you're going to bless all the nations of the world. And he gives them the Mosaic Law. Here's what's really important to understand about the Mosaic Law, including that passage that was in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's a covenant. A less romantic word when you're talking about marriages, it's a contract. Here's what I mean. God rescued them. He, first of all, he calls them when they're nothing. Then they end up enslaved in Egypt. He rescues them out of that pitiful situation that they were in. And he's leading them to this land flowing with milk and honey. It's very, the descriptions, remember we talked about this with the kingdom of heaven. It almost sounds Eden-like when the spies bring their report. They're talking about the land is like flowing with milk and honey, um, fruit the size of basketballs, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just this, this glorious, almost garden-like state that they're hearing about. And God creates a covenant on Mount Sinai with them. He says, here's what's going to happen. And I'm totally paraphrasing, obviously, but he says this, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to lead you to this land over here flowing with milk and honey. I have had my hand on you all along. I'm going to take care of you. This is what I'm going to do. And then he says, and here's what you're going to do. It's an actual contract. It's a bilateral covenant. A bilateral covenant is a covenant that two parties agree to where each of the parties have certain terms that they are to uphold. So God's terms are, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to use you to bless other nations of the world, all this kind of stuff. So what are the terms of their covenant? Well, we know those as the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. So number one, they would have no other gods before him. No one else. No more play in the field. Just God, the Almighty. There would be no graven images. They would, and on and on and on they go. Now, after that text in Deuteronomy chapter 24, after all this, there comes Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Really important to understand in all this, because in that, God says to them, he goes over the terms of the covenant with them, and he says, listen, 
if you will uphold your terms of the covenant, if you will be faithful, then you're going to be blessed. You're going to be protected. You're going to be cared for. It's going to go well with you if you're faithful. But if you're not, if you're unfaithful to the terms of the covenant, here's what you got to understand. You're not going to be my people in my land under my protection anymore. In fact, people are going to come and take you away. You're not going to be blessed. You're going to be cursed. You're not going to be poured into. You're going to be poured out. You're going to be, you're going to be uh, um, led away captive, imprisoned because of your fail, failure to fulfill the curse. And some people would say, well, that actually kind of sounds a lot like how marriages are nowadays. Tell you what, I will stay married to you as long as you do this and you do this and you do this. But if you don't do this, then you're out of here. And if the story ended there, then yeah, that's the way it would be. But the story doesn't end there. Here's where I want you guys to turn to the book of Ezekiel. Will you turn to Ezekiel chapter 16? So they make the covenant. People of Israel get this covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 29, here's the terms. If you do this, it's going to go well for you. If you are unfaithful in the covenant, you're going to be carried away. The people of Israel hear all of this. They ratify the covenant and they say, let's do this. And so the covenant is enacted. How does it go for Israel? Not too good. Um, they, They do horribly in upholding the terms of their covenant. There's even things in the Mosaic law that God gives them and says, hey, I want you to do this and I want you to do this and I want you to do this that they never even do once. And so before we read this, I, I want you to understand something else that I've, I neglected to admit that, or to tell you that's really, really important understanding all this. In this law that's given to them, the terms of the covenant, God's doing something. And this is important to understand. I tell people this sometimes too regarding marriages. Marriages aren't just a celebration that we come to enjoy. In a marriage ceremony, God's making something. He's creating something. And so in the covenant with Israel and and all this law that was given them, what was it that God was creating? Um, The Bible refers to it as he was making a holy people unto himself. Holy means separate. And and so what does that mean? Well, in that culture, God wanted Israel to become a nation that doesn't look like the rest of the nations in the world at the time. He wanted Israel to look like him. And so, for example, he would create laws for Israel. He gave Israel terms of the covenant, and he said this, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to uphold the covenant, here's some things you're going to do. Number one, you're going to be really kind to the widow. You're going to take care of widows. You're going to take care of orphans. You're going to be a sanctuary nation for aliens where you accept them in. Now, why was that a big deal? Because no other nations did that. It was, that was not common in that time. And what he was saying is, look, you're going to be different from every other nation in the world because of the way that you're going to care for one another and care for other people. But that wasn't random. It was an example or a picture of what God had done for them. Because when they were nothing, God had cared for them. When they were imprisoned, God had rescued them. When they were like the orphan kicked to the curb, God had taken care of them. And so he wanted them to live in that same way because the way that they took care of people in helpless situations would teach the rest of the world about who God is. So the idea of this law, it wasn't just random rules where God was testing their fidelity. God was making something. So how did it go? Like we said, it went bad. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 
The people are already carried off. Like, or, or, well, God is telling the people of the punishment that's coming and what he's going to do. They have already broken the rules of the covenant. Just Israel's a mess. And so God speaks through a prophet and he says in verse 1, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. What is he saying? He's telling Ezekiel, hey, go tell the people of Jerusalem this. And there's a picture that he's using about that nation. And here's what he's saying. You're like, when you were born, you were like an orphan that no one cared about. You were like those horror stories that we hear about of babies left in dumpsters or things like that. No one cared for you. You weren't a people. You, you pride yourself on being a son of Abraham right now. But really, when you were called, look, this is who your parents were. You were orphans like a baby helpless laying in your own blood. You know, that sounds bad. Well, no, take a look. Verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you to flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and I entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water, I washed off the blood from you, anointed you with oil, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth, and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists, a chain on your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and beautiful crown on your head. And thus you were adorned with gold and silver." Your clothing with fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Do you see the story of Israel taking place here? He's saying, Look, you were nothing. You, you were in trouble, and then, and, but I rescued you, and I poured into you, and I grew you. And think of the stories, if you know them, of the kingdom under David, and even more, the kingdom under Solomon, where Israel was a kingdom with so much splendor and so much glory that people came from other nations just to see this incredible kingdom that they had heard about. God did all of that, he's saying. He's saying, I was the one that did that. I was the one that poured into you. It's all the things he had promised them even in that covenant. But like we said, it didn't go well, right? Look what happened in verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Notice that the failure to maintain covenant that God calls Israel out on, the terms he's going to use are terms like unfaithful and whoring and infidelity. He's going to compare that in the same way we would do a marriage relationship. And so he says this, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown. 
and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore like has never been or ever shall be. You took beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and incense before them. And also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. And you set them before for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me. And these you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all of your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and wallowing in your blood. He's like, you, you forgot. You forgot the grace that I had poured out on you. You forgot what I did. And you followed the same lie Adam and Eve did. You suddenly thought, you know what? It's kind of about me now. And all these blessings and stuff, it's not a gift from God. It's I can do whatever I want with this. And I can pursue my pleasures instead of having to live this covenant that God wants me to live. I can do what I want. It's suddenly about my pleasure and my joy and whatever I want. And you ran with it. And you forgot the God who called you, the God who saved you, the God who poured into you. You forgot. And so what happened? Look at verse 35. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with lovers and with all your abominable idols, and because the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side, and I will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. I will judge you as women who commit adultery. And shed blood and are judged and bring upon the blood and wrath and jealousy. I will give you into their hands. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They will bring you up a crowd against you. They will stone you, cut you to pieces with swords. They will burn your houses and execute judgment upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry, because you have not remembered the days of your youth. But you have enraged me with these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all of your abominations? Here's what he's saying. I created you as a nation to be different from the rest of the nations of the world. And instead, you were unfaithful to my covenant, and you pursued the same types of things they all lived for. Well, in the end, I'm going to turn you over to them. And so all those nations of the world are actually going to end up coming against you. The Babylonians are going to take you. The Assyrians are going to take you. And it's not going to be pleasurable for you anymore. You're going to be imprisoned to them. You're going to be under a curse, not under joy. You're going to be beat down, not blessed and poured into. And this wonderful, beautiful kingdom that I was building in you is going to be dismantled brick by brick and destroyed. And it's what happened. And if that's where it stopped, we would be like, that's pretty much the way marriages are today. That's kind of the culture. 
you know what? You have offended me. Uh, I have, you have lost favor in my eyes. Therefore, I'm done with the wedding and I'm out. But here's what's awesome. Even in this same text, in Ezekiel 16, fast forward, if you will, to verse 59. And look what it says. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking this covenant. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways. You'll be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder or your younger. I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. And look at the next thing he says. When I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord. He says, even in spite of all this, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to establish a new and everlasting covenant. Not one that gets thrown away, but one that's going to last. It's going to confound you, but this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it when I atone for what you've done. Even more, fast forward just a little more, in the same book, Ezekiel chapter 36. We get insight into the new covenant here in Ezekiel chapter 36. And it says this, uh, 36 beginning in verse 24. God's saying to Israel, I will take you from the nations. Remember all the other nations that are going to take them away from that land? God then says, I will take you from the nations. And I will gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the new covenant. I want you to notice what happens in this covenant. Many of you already know this. We're saying it anyway because it's awesome. This is not a unilateral covenant. In Jeremiah, when he presents the new covenant, in Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you, not like the one that you did, that I gave to your fathers, that one that you broke as you went unfaithful against me. It's now no longer a unilateral covenant where there's terms on both sides to uphold. Notice as you look through it over and over and over, it's just God saying what he's going to do. He says, I will take you. I will gather you. I will bring you. I will sprinkle and clean water on you. Uh, you will be clean. I will find your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put it within you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to be able to obey my rules. You will dwell in the land that I give your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. It's all things that God is saying he's going to do. It's a unilateral covenant, which in our culture, it's like a will. It's just a statement that says, here's what I'm going to do and you have no say in the matter. This is what he says. He's like, because he's faithful, even when we're faithless. And how does that happen? It happens because he himself became flesh. Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect sinless life, upholding all of the terms to 
all of the covenants that we break. He did it perfectly. Then he went to the cross and he bore our record. The sin and the failures to uphold that covenant all went onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ and he paid the price. He atoned for them. What was the price that he paid? He died. For the wages of sin is death. But he rose from the grave again and he triumphed over sin and death. And now the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in him and we turn from that living for self, sinful life and we say, I will put my faith in you, I want to be your people, you are my God, that we are adopted into his family, that we we become his, it says. And we're given his record. So that perfect life Jesus lived, it's as if there's like a report card at the end of his life that shows how Jesus did everything perfect. And somehow that then gets stapled to our chest. If we can use marriage terms, let's say it this way. We get to wear white again in spite of our unfaithfulness. It's an incredible thing. It's a beautiful thing. And then the Bible talks about the eternal implications of that, how one day we're going to be reunited with him in in person at things like the marriage feast of the Lamb. It talks about the fact that now those who have faith in Jesus are a new creation and we're referred to as the bride of Christ because he has bought us back in spite of our unfaithfulness and our infidelity and he has saved us. And all of it is not because he's faithful to us. It's not that we are um, worthy of that kind of faithfulness. It's that he is faithful to himself and to his promises. He willed out of his good heart and love he willed to do this for us, and even though we're faithful or faithless, he is faithful to his word, and he will do it. And the word tells us he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's amazing. Amen again. Come on. Okay, but, but now here's the thing. And then he calls us to do the same thing. So now I want you to turn to Ephesians. Just so you know, if you haven't been in the church long enough, you should know it is absolutely impossible to ever talk about marriage anywhere in a church service without at some point eventually getting to Ephesians chapter 5. So that's where we're going to be. Ephesians chapter 5 is the last part of this because all of that's great, but what does that have to do with the way that we handle our marriages is what we want to get to. And I want you to see what he says here. Ephesians chapter 5 starts with the word, therefore. It means it's tied to something that came before it. And in Ephesians 1, 2, 3 is this beautiful depiction of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we have been rescued and saved and adopted into his family. This beautiful picture about unity within the church, how we are all one and there's one spirit and how all of our gifts serve one another to do this one purpose that we're empowered by the same God. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he starts talking about this new life, Paul does. And he says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now remember the call to Israel. He was saying to them, I want you to be holy and separate. I don't want you to be like all of those other nations. Now he's saying to the church, look, you're going to be different than all of those other people. You're going to be different. And look what he says. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from life and God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They become callous, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, 
Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It, it's this idea of, hey, don't be like Adam did when he said, we'll, we'll be our own gods. Don't live that way. Don't live for all of your own passions and pursuits. Don't live this selfish lifestyle anymore. You're not going to do that. You're going to be like God. And so when Ephesians 5 verse 1 starts, what does it say? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The church has the same calling that Israel did in the sense that the way we live is supposed to imitate God. The law given Israel wasn't random rules. It was supposed to make them look like God. And that's the same for us too. So then when Paul goes in Ephesians 5, and now we get to the actual marriage text, keep this in mind as you look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Oh, by the way, lots of complicated territory in here. I'm fully aware of that. This is not a marriage treatise sermon. That is not what this is. Just big picture stuff. Stay with me on that, okay? So verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Think about the words in in, in Ezekiel, and look what he says. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ of the church. Because we are all members of his body. And then here's that line again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is again. It appears in Genesis. It appears in Jesus' teachings on marriage and divorce. And now Paul uses it. It's a line that's been around for quite a while. It's gotten a lot of press in the Bible, you might say. But now Paul gives an insight that has not been as apparently given before, and it's really important. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, this is a big deal, because think about this. When was that first said? It was said at creation in Genesis chapter 2. And who said it? I'll tell you who said it. Take a look at this quote from Jesus in the book of Matthew regarding divorce, and look what he says about this Genesis creation. And he answered, this is Jesus speaking now, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So pause. Who created them from the beginning and made them male and female? God did. They would all agree with that. But then look, and said, notice that, he created them and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What are you saying, Jeff? I'm saying that that line in Genesis that appears at the end of that first wedding ceremony is a quote from God. 
Jesus ascribes those words to God. If we had a red letter Bible, it should be red. It's the words of God. He was doing something at the very beginning. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that from the very beginning, before the fall even happened, it was a gospel picture. It was about Jesus and the church. It's always meant to be. So listen, why does the church care so much about marriage? Why is marriage an issue within the church at all? Because it's way bigger than just marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. Before the fall even happened, the gospel plan was in place because he knew what was coming. And he said, I'm going to create this thing called marriage. And I want to use it to set people apart within the church even to declare the gospel to the rest of them. And you go, what, is, what do you mean by that? It means this. Let's think about what actually happens in a marriage ceremony. So we've already got past the part where all the people come in and they line up. The father brings the bride in. We've got the whole first wedding ceremony that we talked about, right? And then what happens? When I do a wedding, I don't let people write their own vows. I don't allow it. Now, if you want to read a sentimental statement or something like that, that's totally fine. You can, you can read a little love note to one another if you guys want to do that. And people do that in weddings that I've done before. But when it comes to the actual vows... I don't let you write your own vows. You have to use the ones that I use. Why? Because what's being said is super important. Think about what happens in the vow. Just the traditional ones. Think about it. In sickness or in health, what is it you're saying? That is a unilateral covenant where someone is saying, I will be with you if we are sick. I will be with you if we are healthy. The health of us physically or emotionally or whatever is not a condition upon which I will or will not stay with you. So it removes that condition away. Uh, Richer or poorer, I will stay with you if we are rolling in it, and I will stay with you if we are broke. Our financial situation is not a consideration or a condition upon which I am building this covenant with you. In the marriage vows, we're making a vow to one another. We are literally, and I'm sorry this isn't as romantic as some might want to say, it's a covenant, it's a contract that's being made with one another before God. And in the contract, two different people are making a vow to each other before God to do for the other person what God has done for them. I will stay with you, he's stayed with me. I will follow, or I will, I will serve you in the way God has served me. I'm not going to leave if we're broke because God doesn't leave me. It's a, it, it's a gospel reenactment ceremony. And so, why does the church care about divorce? Because marriage is not an invention of man. It's an invention of God that's intended to preach the gospel to the world out there. And that the way the church handles divorce is supposed to look differently from the rest of the world. And too often, we approach it to go, but where are the boundaries? When can I get out? Is divorce allowed here? Is divorce allowed there? And there are certainly instances, of course. There there are certainly things that we should talk about on -on one-on-one basis to talk about the scenarios that are going on in our private lives. There's stuff that's going down for sure. But Jesus, when he's asked about divorce, pushes beyond the law and goes back to the heart of the very thing from the very, very beginning. And so maybe for us as church people, more often, instead of saying, When can we get divorced? The better question is, why is marriage so important in the first place? 
and to remember the heart behind it. Because in marriage, we're saying to the other person, we're going to mess up, I know it, and we're going to have seasons of life. There's going to be healthy seasons, there's going to be unhealthy seasons, there's going to be wealthy seasons, there's going to be poor seasons, there's going to be all sorts of different seasons, but I'm making a covenant to you now in front of these witnesses and with God here. I'm making a covenant with you now that says I'm going to love you and stay with you regardless. And the reason that I'm doing that is because that's what Jesus has done for us. Now, here's the reality, and I'm out of time. You're like, okay, well, get to the how. I don't have a whole lot of how for you today. Um, This is not intended, like I said, to be a five-point treatise on how to not get divorced or how to stay. That's that's not the point here, but but I can give you a couple of ideas to to consider. Uh, Number one, I would say this. You are not powerless. God is in this. So think about when God says the two become one, this is a profound mystery. Well, one of the mysteries of the Bible that's very profound is the, the makeup of our, our God himself. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three different entities, yet all in one. And there's another mystery that's happening when two people get married. And you go, well, it's close though, Jeff. It's two, it's not one. Yeah, but then you get to Ecclesiastes and you see things like that three-strong cord is not easily broken. And so I would say that in a Christian marriage, it, it is actually a partnership between you, your spouse, and God. And I don't know if you know this or not, and we don't have time to go down the road, so I'll just give you a little, a little hint. God's like super powerful <laughs> and has a whole bunch of resources. And he didn't call you into this to be by yourself. And, and then the other thing that I would say this, marriage and the church are the two things that are upheld as examples of the gospel to the world out there. That, that we within the church are supposed to operate in the same way, to be unified in the same way, to be forgiving in the same way, to be loving in the same way, to be serving in the same way. And, and I think it would just seem to make sense that if marriage and the gospel have the same ultimate mission down the road, and we're both in both of them, that they're probably also supposed to be a resource that actually helps and supports one another. So this is why things like community and stuff that, that we emphasize are so important. Because, man, I'll tell you what has happened so many times. So many times... People don't want to come to the church about the issues they're dealing with in their marriage, and they put it off and put it off and put it off and put it off until it's on life support and hearts are already hardened, and it's as if divorce is now inevitable because of the hardness of hearts of the people that are in it. And I would just say, please don't do that. Like, please understand. Look, marriage is hard. It is. And it should be because what what we're saying marriage is about pushes against not only our own selfish, natural nature, but against Satan. So, of course, it's going to be hard. So, we should, we should come together in this. And, I, and I'll, I'll confess to you guys now, the first however many years at Heritage, we, we actually put a lot more emphasis into investing in marriages and talking about marriage and, and resourcing marriages. And I think there was some really fruitful time because of that. And we haven't done that as much over the last few years. And we've talked about that and we repent of that and we're making plans to fix that. But the church should be a support for marriage. And so that means we just got to humble ourselves sometimes and be willing to go, man, I'm just having a hard time. The best marriages in the world go through seasons of struggle. All of them do. And the best husbands in the world are still miserable failures. The best wives in the world are still miserable failures. We fail. The Bible tells us that over and over and over and over again. 
So it would make sense that we should be able to come together, be in gospel community with one another, whether it be in like a huddle group here, if you have your own community, wherever that is, the important thing that you have people walking with you that that can support you and teach you and call you out and speak to you and all of that kind of stuff, instead of taking the approach that says, no, 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 marriage is private and so we won't talk about any of that kind of stuff and we want to make sure we look holy. Look, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Instead to go, man, I I don't think I have this all together and I'm having a tough season. And then with that, we have, we have pastors here at the church. We have counselors in the valley that we work with. If sometimes knots get so tangled, it's a little bit above our pay grade. And for me, that's basically just like one loop knot. Anything above that is pretty much above my pay grade. But, but there are godly trained men and women in the valley that, that we have worked with in other situations before that we can recommend and that we can connect you with. There, but even more than that, there's really godly success stories in this room right now. I see people in this room that have been on the verge of divorce and God has rescued your marriage and you are qualified to come alongside these people and say, hey, hang in there. It's worth it and God can do this. And so the church is a gift. God gives himself to us. And so in summary, what's Heritage's stance on divorce? Don't get divorced. (laughs) Just trust God. Simplistic, I know it's complicated, so come talk to us. But don't get divorced. Trust God. And let's preach the gospel to the world even through those relationships. Amen? Will you stand and let's pray together? Again, I want to say... There's a lot of different stories in here. If God's convicting you, go wrestle with that. If there's condemnation coming because of your past, remember that condemnation doesn't come from the Lord. And just go to the Lord. Amen? God, I just pray your blessing on the marriages here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, Lord. I, I just pray that you would empower us by your Spirit. Lord, there are people in this room on every end of the spectrum from thriving in their marriage right now to hanging on by a thread to divorced. And I just pray, God, that your spirit would move, that you would remind us of your grace and your mercy, and that you would speak to us by your spirit. Show us how we are to live. Show us how we are to walk. Show us how we can support and help one another. And Lord, may you be glorified in everything. May our marriages as well as our church not be about us, but about you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.